Hey Siri, find me a dope podcast for black insurance professionals. Connecting you to Sobel Live. What's up, Sober family? Welcome to Sober Live, where industry and culture meet. I am T. Priester, co-founder of Sober and president of Noble. All right. Hello, everyone. This is Shay Norman, co-founder of Sober and founder of The Bridge Financial Accountability Coaching Company. What's up? How you doing today? How you doing today, Shay? I'm doing good. I, I cannot complain. This is a great Monday. I took the week off, so I'm feeling pretty good. The whole week, huh? Uh, almost almost i'll get one day of work in there somewhere so define week off for us <laughs> some people week off just means i stopped doing one thing and started doing another that's like, uh, that that part that okay. that's what that means okay. this is not like a fluff week where i can't do anything got a lot going on so i decided you know what if there's one thing i can eliminate what is it it's work you say that like that's the norm for most people. Well, if it is or if it isn't, it's mine. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll go with that then. It's your norm. Yep. Okay. Yep. Well, <laughs> How's your Monday? It's going well. Um, good weekend. Uh, today, I, I, I kind of went back to the basics today. You know, I've been having some conversations with agents over the last couple of weeks and you know, we got a lot of agents that are just struggling for one reason or another, hmm. you know, so I'm not in the field as much. I don't sell as much. So, you know, when you get to a certain place, you can kind of be out of touch. Right. So, um, you know, I was creating some content for another podcast and an interview I'm doing. And, you know, the topic for me was, is cold calling effective in 2022? Right. Because when I was brought into the industry, that's how I made my appointments. You would right. have a list and you would set your appointments and you would go into the field. And, you know, we kind of moved to marketing on social media and websites and landing pages and, you know, all this other stuff. So, you know, I went back to the basic basics and um, I bought me a list, put a list in my, my CRM, excuse me, in my, in my dialer. And uh, for about two hours, I just dialed just to kind of see what that feels like. And, mm-hmm. you know, I don't want to be preaching something to agents that doesn't work anymore. I mean, right. it worked for me, but hell, I've been at this almost 20 years and I don't want to be one of those guys like, Oh, you got to do this, that or whatever, because that worked for me in the past. It may not work anymore. So, you know, today was one of those days where I just kind of looked at some numbers, you know, tried to figure out how I can help some of these agents that are kind of, you know, in a rut right now struggling because leads the whole lead system program, market is a mess i mean you got people selling leads that don't need to be selling leads and you know a lot of agents are getting caught up because they're spending their whole budget on leads that aren't producing anything so my thing is if i can create them myself and cut out the middleman that's what i want to do so 
again, just seeing that's a, if that's a viable option. And by the end of the week, hopefully I'll have some numbers that I can share with the group. Well, def- I'm looking forward to hearing how that goes. I've not been in the field in about five years. Mm. And so in the last two weeks, I've been working with new agents on the phone, leading them to, well, I would say leading them through the conversation, leading them to a close. And it's been so exciting. It's been fun. But again, it's not my day to day. And so I don't know how excited they were about it, but but I was. But I'm looking forward to hearing, you know, how that goes with you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was interesting. You know, it was interesting. But so I have a question, though, real quick. Um, Mm -hmm. When you say that you've been talking to agents who are really struggling lately, is it is that the main thing? I mean, I know your podcast is about cold calling, but is that the main struggle that you're hearing? Yeah, I think, yes, they, they don't have enough people to talk to, qualified people to talk to, right? So, again, social media allows us to see people's success without seeing the journey. Yeah. So, if you're following some of these successful agents online, you know, they're talking about how they're closing all these all this business, you know, every week using social media and different things, Facebook ads. So, people are just throwing money into, you know those platforms and not really understanding how they work. Hmm. Right. So, you know, I've talked to people and I shared this with you um, before I learned how to start doing Facebook marketing and Facebook ads for myself, just to get the campaign set up. There were people charging three, four, $5,000 without you ever getting a lead. That was just to set you up. Oh, wow. So you're an agent and you take your whole budget and you throw $3,000 into this campaign to start up. And then on the back end, you realize, oh, you still have to pay for the, the ad. You have to still pay for the ad spend. Right. So, you know, now you're at four grand. And if this thing doesn't produce, and I'll share my thoughts on Facebook leads as well, because I've run some campaigns, you know, personally. And, you know, I'll, I'll be sharing that. But, yeah, it's just, I, I don't know. It's, it's, I think people forgot some of the basics and what has worked chasing yeah, some of absolutely. this new newer stuff. Absolutely. And we're, we're not, our industry is not isolated. I think that happens across the board. Um, I shared with you that when I was in the field, I never bought leads. It was always me getting out and hustling and, you know, going about it in an organic way this time around, I will, I will be making some changes here soon. And this time around, what I do believe is it's going to be a mix you know, of a couple of different things. I definitely, that's why I want to hear about your leads, but, um, but yeah, that, that'll be a good conversation for us to have soon. Yeah. And, and just to be clear, I don't, I don't want agents to think I'm saying those things don't work. Um, Facebook ads definitely do work. Social media marketing definitely does work. It's just, you have to have an understanding and realistic expectations on how they work. Right. It doesn't fill your book, you know, overnight, if you don't really understand some of these, some of these systems and how they work. So, yeah, we'll definitely be talking about that. But um, you have some industry news you want to share tonight? You know, um, I'm really stuck. I'm, I'm biased, but I'm I'm really stuck in a space. I've gotten a few calls. Well, what would I say? Probably about five calls in the last two weeks about um, brokers in the Medicare space, Medicare or senior health sales space, I would say who are worried about CMS's new regulation on having to have their phone calls recorded, all Mm -hmm. phone calls recorded. So this ruling came out about a month ago and 
many agents who were independent, just out there on their own or independent agency owners, they didn't think that this rule applied to them because the way CMS designates who has to be recorded, they call it a TPMO, third party marketing organization. However, under that definition, that includes independent agents, right? Because they're not a part of the actual carrier. Now, I've, I've started digging into these regulations and I haven't gotten to the point that I'm looking at whether or not employed agents, agents who are employed with an insurance carrier also have to be because I don't think they fall under third party. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll keep, you know, keep us in the loop on this because one of the things that I thought about when you talked about cold calling and how difficult that is. Now that we're not in such a COVID scare, if you will, I'm also looking forward to helping my agents get out and get in front of groups, you know, being able to speak to them one-on-one because I haven't found anything in this documentation that says those types of uh, interactions have to be recorded. So if I can point agents to being face-to-face and getting in front of groups to get over that hurdle, there it is. Or there are already companies out there that if you purchase the right software, the right equipment, you can record. So it might sound a little selfish. I mean, I've been in this industry a long time. It was just like when the scope of appointment came out and it That's presented a hurdle. Yeah. And a lot of people were like, oh my God, I got to get out of here. I'm running for the hills. This is going to do the same thing for many people. And I am just going to sit back and watch who leaves and pick up the business while they're gone. So that is interesting. And and I was going to bring up the scope of appointment because that was one of the things that kind of pushed me out of Medicare. I haven't done it in four or five years, but, you know, having to, to start doing the scope, you know, before actually going to see people was just another step that gave people opportunities to be like, you, you know what, never mind, I don't want to do it or whatever. Right. So I, I, I was bought into it back in the wild, wild west where you can knock on doors and sell people on the spot. So right. CMS has been, you know, putting in procedures and policies for years to kind of eliminate. And I get it because there's a lot of elder fraud and, and, you know, Medicare fraud out there. So mm-hmm. I get that part. But I'm just curious on how the consumer is going to feel about this, because do you have to get their approval to record I'm sure you do. Um, you know, you can't just record and not let people know. Now, I've done this before with one particular company. You know, I've done it with my calls being recorded before. And I think just in sales in general, our approach and the way we come across is so much more important than the information and the products. Because if you don't come across correctly, none of that stuff really matters. It wasn't a problem for me. Um, mm-hmm. my approach on the phone, my energy level on the phone, the fact that I didn't sound like it was such a big deal. Hey, this is something new and it's put in place to protect you. If you just give me a little bit more time, we'll go through X, Y, and Z, you know, and, and just make it a, a pleasant, as pleasant a call as possible. Um, and I just want to read this. It just says, and this is from Think Advisor. Most of the publications say the same thing. It appears that now agents and brokers are now TPMOs, third-party marketing organizations, which means they are now required to record all marketing calls with both clients 
and prospects. That's the right and there. prospects yeah, yeah. where Medicare Advantage and Medicare Part D plans are discussed. And I'll be honest, the commercials with JJ Walker and you know all the others that are just saying, "Hey, you might qualify for this and you might qualify for that." I'm just looking forward to this year's annual enrollment period to see what the marketing looks like now. And of course, this rule doesn't actually start until October 1st. Gotcha. So we've got a quick question. Um, Armida, hey, Armida, thank you for joining us tonight. She's asking, is this only on the calls or the face-to-face? No, Armida. So my understanding so far is that it is marketing calls um, and not face-to-face. And so that means we're just going to be out here face-to-face in these Medicare streets. But I will update um next week after i've had time to to go through this a little bit more so face-to-face is probably just going to be the scope of appointment like before correct correct okay that's that's what i'm thinking but we'll we'll um i'll follow up gotcha all right any other stories um that one just really got me i mean if we have to go to where in the country are we having (laughs) some issues i mean we're having issues all over but we keep talking about florida and the, you know, carriers leaving Florida, the insolvency, and now, which we should have already known was going to be a headline, it's just what the um, brokers, the property and casualty brokers in Florida are now, they're scrambling, Um, they feel overworked, you know, different companies are leaving, and so they're just doing a, a lot more work, and now they're starting to exit the market down there in Florida as well, so Nothing much to get into. I mean, Florida just continues to have issues, you know, when it comes to insurance. We need to do um, a PNC show and show our PNC agents some love because we, we're very he- heavily weighted to the life and health. So I'm sure that they're really feeling this. I, I see the stories, but since I don't do PNC, you know, I don't pay too, too much attention to it. But I think, you know, sooner than later, we need to have a show dedicated to what our PNC agents are going through out there. You know, that's really true. And then also, and I think we've done we've done a good job here and there, but um, I think it would be nice, too, if some of our PNC agents would send us news and happenings that they think are important. Um, yeah. So that would be great, you all, if you all can send us some information that you think is good to share and we're just, you know, not highlighting that PNC info. Yeah. So I have something to share. It's not really, well, it is, you know, all of the stories, again, we, we say, industry and culture, um, th- this kind of intersects a little bit. And I wanted to talk about this a few weeks ago because it's a little stale now, but, you know, still fresh enough to talk about. Mm-hmm. And that's the uh, the Chad, Chadwick Bozeman situation. Um, you know, there, there's been a lot of stories about what his family ended up with after all of his assets went through, through probate. So, you know, mm-hmm. Black Panther was one of the highest grossing, I think number two Marvel movie ever made over a billion dollars and um his net worth was between 12 and 15 million they were reporting and after all of his assets everything went through probate his family ended up having like two million to split and you know i was having a conversation with some other agents and it's like a lot of times we we think that you know wealthy people kind of have access to things that the average person doesn't Mm-hmm. And, you know, we had a conversation not, not too long ago with, you know, one of our partners, Roy signing Dwight Howard and all that. And the more and more we are having these conversations is is even though they have access, 
a lot of times they don't have someone taking the time to make these conversations priority. Right. Right. You're a movie star. You got a family. You're traveling. You're shooting. You're doing this and that. And those meetings end up just being, let's go over the books real quick. This is how much you made in. This is what your expenses are. This is what your projections are. You know, these your taxes, things like that. And, you know, the, the protection and the legacy plans and the retirement plans and, you know, the estate planning, all that stuff usually doesn't end up being part of the conversation. Right. And, you know, when when you're dealing with a lot of these high end clients, you know, some of these people are on payroll. So they're not as pressed as an agent that has to make his money by making sure you're properly taken care of, you know, through products and services. So, you know, seeing what he went through, you know, towards the end of his life and then having his family still mourning and now have to deal with this, you know, that was one of the stories that just kind of, you know, reached out to me and it's like, we got to make sure that we're having these conversations regardless of where we think our clients are. Absolutely. We may think they're okay, or we don't need to talk to them about that part of it because they got it. Um, I think we'd be surprised on how many people actually don't have it. So I agree. I agree. And I mean, not to quote the great, but to quote the great more money, more problems. I mean, we yeah. do tend to, as a matter of fact, I would think someone like a chat with Bozeman, Actors and actresses, people who are really working in their passion, who um, part of their work is not being themselves, right? Not even being in their own life. They're the more successful they are, the more they are playing another role or not even in their life in a sense. So it's, it's another level. It's more money, but I can see that it's probably even less access to important information, unless you seek it yourself, just like, you know, your, your everyday folks, if we don't seek the information ourselves, it's not going to happen, but we might be on social media. We might have friends or family that we trust and we respect that are in the industry and may be able to bend our ears. I think it's a, it's a great thing when an agent can look at a person as another human being, we're in the business of insuring people or insuring property that's important to them no matter what level you think they are on. And, you know, we really got to meet people right there. I mean, I, you, you already said it, I, I said it differently, but, but yeah, those people are probably a lot more out of touch. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So that's all I have for industry yeah. news. I want to get into our conversation, our topic tonight. Um, but I do really quickly want to, um, we're not doing a, an actual ad, but you guys know black Friday, uh, DC is coming up. We've been posting information on the wall. It is August, Friday, August 5th uh, at the ga gathering spot in Washington, DC. So uh, if you guys have not, I highly recommend you go ahead and register. Um, I believe right now, the way it's set up, the first 50 people to register get a free uh, it's not called a grab bag. What is it? Uh, a gift bag or swag bag. That's what she called. Yeah. So if you haven't signed up and you want your swag bag, go ahead and sign up. First 50 people have access to that. More information to come, but it is posted on the wall. And we just wanted to remind you guys that Sober will be in the house Friday, August 5th for Black Friday, D.C. Mm -hmm. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get into our conversation tonight is diversity and inclusion 
all a lie. And we're gonna bring in our guest, Miss Latrice Ross. Latrice, how are you doing this evening? I'm great. How are you? I am well. So let me just say this right off the bat. We Shay and I had a conversation with Latrice um not less than a week ago. Yeah. Less than a week ago. And um this is one of those podcasts where I'm going to have to make sure that I snap out of just falling back and listening because the conversation we had with her was so dope. I got notes here that I'm going to be sharing from that conversation. It was really a learning experience, enlightening experience for me. So I got to remember we're hosting the show tonight and I'm not sitting you know, in a seat just to learn. But Latrice, I'm going to let you do your intro. Tell people a little bit about yourself and what you do because it's very unique. Sure. Um, I'm a diversity and inclusion um, professional. I've been doing this work. I have to quantify. I've been doing this work for 15 years um, because after the murder of George Floyd, um, there were a lot of newcomers to the industry, but I've been doing the work before it became popular. Um, And what I do is I go into organizations and I help them to determine if they are being inclusive and equitable. And if they're not, um, determine where there is opportunity and help them to develop and implement strategies that will allow them to um, cultivate greater inclusion, um, achieve greater equity, and by doing that, create greater engagement and a greater sense of belonging with their their staff. Well, we we thank you for joining us. We really look forward to this conversation. And Shay, can I I ask the first question here? Um, Latrice just touched on it. I hear the, the George Floyd situation being the awakening point for a lot of people like oh once i saw george floyd i knew i had to do something and you know i i kind of feel i i got i'm kind of mixed in how i feel about that like mm-hmm. you know we've seen police brutality and you know conflicts with authority and stuff in this country for hundreds of years why do you think george floyd was a tipping point for a lot of people. I mean, I'm I'm old enough to remember Rodney King and, you know, so many other things that have happened in this country. What was different about George Floyd, in your opinion? Um, I believe that what was different. Well, first, let me quantify what I'm going to say. Um, we have two or three generations of people who were raised not to see color, to say that everyone's treated the same. And so we don't see color. We don't talk about color. By doing that, we've created two or three generations who, um, in a sense, mentally don't see color. And because m- more often than not, we, we live and, and operate in homogenous environments, oftentimes these folks who don't see color don't see the oppression and don't see the things that we see. And when they do see it, that's where the bias comes into play. That's that's where what they see on the media comes into play. Well, they had to be doing something wrong because we don't see color as a society anymore. And so as it relates to George Floyd being an awakening, it was in a sense the perfect storm because the world was broken at that point. It was literally shut down. There was, there was nothing to do. You had to stay home. Folks were quarantining. There were no bars, no movies, no plays, no concerts, no offices to go into. And so people were um, in a sense transfixed on their televisions and they saw this man being murdered on national TV. They saw a police officer, a white police officer, put his knee on a man's neck and literally um, suffocate him to death. 
And so for a lot of people that sent them into a tailspin, like this just doesn't happen in our society because clearly he wasn't doing anything wrong at that moment. And so it, it shook them awake because they they weren't distracted. And typically when they, these types of things happen, oh, well, he was doing something wrong. He should have stopped or he should have done this, but that didn't happen. And so it left a lot of people questioning um, what they had always thought and believed. Mm. Okay. Yeah, I that's, going back to the conversation we had, we talked a little bit about that. And um, I'm glad you asked that question because that really opens it up. Most people can connect with what you just described, Latrice. But I want to take it back a little bit for you and talk about what got you involved in diversity, equity, and inclusion and what keeps you passionate about it. Because that's the other thing that we noticed, you know, out of the conversation that you're really passionate about it. So it goes back to how I was raised. Um, and to be honest, my mother, if she were still alive and thought the same way that she raised, thought when she raised me, she would probably be disappointed in my career choice. She raised me to, with the belief that if you work hard, you go to school, you get a good education, you work hard, you'll succeed in life. Um, and for the first part of my adult life, that's what I believed. But I took a role where I was a mentor to a group of Black and Latina women. Um, and the role was to to get them to be their coach, to get them out of hospitality type jobs and to help them start careers as technical consultants. Part of the program, they had to tell their story. And so in telling their story, I, I was opened up to a different belief set that not everybody who works hard still has that same access to opportunity. And so that sent me down a path of researching and wondering if I if my beliefs were wrong and I came back with they were. And the more research that I did, the more inequities that I saw and the angrier I became. Um, because part of the reason that as a community, as a Black community, that we're in the situation that we're in is because of those inequities. It's, been, it's because of wage inequity that we have a wealth gap. Um, and, and until we correct that, um, we're not going to be able to change much in our community. Mm. Okay. So you mentioned a couple of things that we talked about excuse me, that we talked over the weekend about. And one of the things you, you shared with us was this global diversity, um, equity, inclusion benchmark mm -hmm. as a starting point for how companies kind of judge where they are when it comes to this whole this, um, this movement. Can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. The global diversity, equity, and inclusion um, and belonging benchmark is a tool that an organization can use to determine where they are on their diversity journey, whether they are inactive, um, whether they're reactive, whether they're proactive, progressive, or whether they are um, at best practices. Um, there is There are over 100 um, re um, requirements that you go through when you assess where you are in that benchmark. And then from that, you can then determine where your um, opportunities for change exist and then put together strategies to begin to impact those changes. Um, many organizations don't take the time to highlight or, or to understand where their, their deficits are. They just like to go in and start troubleshooting, but it's like throwing, um, throwing targets 
in the dark because you don't know whether or not you're hitting the targets that you need to because you haven't gotten to the root cause of the problems. So the, G the GDEIB will allow an organization to determine where those root cause issues lie so they can begin to address the issues from the root and solve the problem so that it's sustainable. Right, okay. You, you mentioned the word um, belonging. So when I was doing some of my research and I really, I actually watched a few TED Talks just to get a real feel for someone like yourself discuss where belonging fits. And so I would guess that many people just like me who were still looking at diversity and inclusion, maybe throwing in equity in there or at least enough till it wasn't foreign. And now you introduce a word like belonging. So where does diversity, equity, and inclusion fall off when there is no belonging? Or just explain how that comes into play. Sure. So diversity is, is just getting people into the room. That's, that's the very first part. So you get this diverse group of folks in here, um, but now what do I do? So now I need to um, treat them equitably. And I use the word equity, equity equitably, not equally, because you have to achieve equity before you can achieve equality. So equity is giving an individual what they need to achieve, um, achieve success. So let's say I have these glasses on and if I'm data processor, I may need a special screen that will allow me to be able to, to view um, my screen appropriately so that I can process the number of applications that my coworkers do. Um, so giving me equity would be giving me that screen that would help me overcome my visual impairment. And then that would allow me to work at an equal pace as my colleagues. So you have to get the diverse folks in there Then you treat them, you give them equity. Once you give them equity, um, then you focus on including them, um, making certain that they feel that they are, that they have everything that they need, that their voice is heard and that they, they, they matter and they are respected. Um, from that, that's where you get a sense of belonging. Um, so they all sort of have to align to get that greater sense of belonging. Belonging is I fit here, I belong here, um, I'm respected, my voice is heard, my voice is respected, um, and, and, I'm, and I'm qualified and trusted to do the role that I've been hired to do. So they, they build on each other. Diversity, then equity builds on top of that diversity, then inclusion builds on top of that, and then belonging um, is the final product of having that diversity, equity, and inclusion in place. Okay, I'm glad you explained that that way because when I, you know, clearly I have an a general understanding of what belonging is, but when I came away from reading and listening, I said, well, like you just said, the belonging is the conclusion or or that's what happens when the other parts are working in order. Um, so cool. Thank you for, for explaining that. So this weekend, diversity and inclusion was front and center because the L.A., well, they're not L.A., the Las Vegas Raiders uh, hired their first black female team president in league's history. So there was a lot of conversation about that. Sandra Douglas Morgan is her name. So, you know, I saw a lot of people talking about that, but someone also posted a video of um, Carrie Champion, who used to be on ESPN. She was on a talk show on ESPN, and she was talking about her 
experience at ESPN. She was hired, double minority, black female, black woman, uh, was hired. And she was on this sports show. And she wasn't able to give her opinions on the show. Her job was basically, you ask the question, and the men go back and forth and debate and give their opinions on different things. So people would always ask, well, you're smart. Why? You know, you're there for a reason. Why aren't you talking? But they pretty much silenced her. They told her in the meetings, no, you know, you, that's not your job. That's not your position or whatever. And, you know, she ended up leaving and now is telling her story. So my question is, you know, we see these people put in position sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. How do we know, and, and maybe we don't, but just for conversations sake, if people are just being put in positions so these companies can check off a box, double minority, I, I hired a black woman, I hired a black man or whatever, or are they really being put in a position where they can affect change in the culture of the company? Um, more often than not, organizations do engage in tokenism. Um, That's the word I was Oftentimes it's, it's may not have been intentional, but their actions, once they bring that that person into the organization by not including them, by not um, giving them a sense of belonging, it shows that they're just there to check a box and thus that's tokenism. Um, One way you can tell is if that voice is silenced, if they can't offer an opinion, if they don't seem to have the respect of their colleagues. I'm very outspoken in, in whenever I work with an organization, I'm very outspoken. And there have been some organizations that said this, there was this one organization that's headquartered in the UK. You're just too outspoken. We're just not accustomed to that. Um, and so it was, we just, it, I'm not a good fit for you. Let's, let's part ways. Um, but that's the way to tell, because if you are there to really bring about change, then your voice is, your voice will be encouraged. Um, instead of silenced. Right. I like that because we were having a conversation again because of what the Raiders have done, but the NFL has a rule in place called the Rooney rule where black coaches at least have to be interviewed. Right Mm -hmm. now we haven't seen a shift in the numbers of black coaches in the NFL, you know, that that drastically, but they're saying, okay, at least we're interviewing black candidates. Do you see that becoming more of the norm with some of these major companies moving forward saying we're at least going to let you all come in for interviews, whether you get the job or not, so we can say we're trying? That's not going to move the needle. And and I think with the Rooney rule, they just have to interview one minority person. And there is less than 1% chance that if you introduce one historically, one person from an historically excluded group into an interview process, it's a less than 1% chance that that person would be hired, selected. If you introduce two, that raises the chance of actually hiring someone from a historically excluded group up to in the 70% range. Um, You know, it increases it exponentially. So by just saying you have to interview one it's simply checking a box. You'll do what recently Wells Fargo came under fire because they had implemented the Rooney rule in their business. And they were interviewing folks just to say we interviewed, but they had already, and oftentimes they'd made decisions about who they wanted to hire prior to even interviewing these folks. And they were just wasting time. And I believe there is a, a former coach that's actually suing the NFL because he's saying that that's what happened to him when he interviewed for a coach's role 
But POTUS position had already been filled, but they were just going through checking the boxes to ensure that they checked, they interviewed him, but had no intentions of actually hiring him. Yeah, he was a coach for the Miami Dolphins, and it, one of the other coaches slipped up and leaked that the position was already being been filled. So you're right. They were just kind of going through the motions at that point because they knew what they were going to do. So you have to put hiring targets in place. It's one thing to just say you'll interview, but you need targets that say, for instance, Cisco says that they are that tw- I think 20 percent of their lead. They're going to have 20 percent leaders that are black in their organization by a certain year. So now not only are we going to interview people, but now we're saying that our leadership will be comprised of 20 percent black people. So now I'm saying there's a target I got to hit and I put it out there for my shareholders um, to know that this is my target. So it's those kinds of, of initiatives that we need in place, not just to say that you'll interview, but not only will you interview, but we have a target where we want X percent of our coaches to be from historically excluded group. Until we do that, nothing will change. Right. I have a, I have a, a couple of things um, I want to, to talk about here. Um, insurance. And I think the last thing I want to, approach and TP, you probably have this on your list too, just to talk about insurance because it's a space, again, I could be a little bit biased, but it's a space that I think is probably one of the least diverse industries across the board. Um, So I want to get into some numbers there, but I want to ask you in your practice, when you're working, how do you determine that you're going to work with a company? Do they need to have those specific goals before you will work with them. Um, how do you take choose? You know who's ready, who's really in this because they have a real mission, real goals. Versus, hey, I, there's not much for me to do here. Um, I asked why you want to do this, and the, if they tell me that, oh well, we we have litigation going on. Nine times out of ten, I won't even engage with that company. Mm-hmm. Um, I've worked with organizations who were in, in the middle of litigation and they simply want more often than not, they want to see the litigation through, but they really don't want to bring about change. So that's the first question that I ask. And if you can't give me an answer that I feel is acceptable, then we're not a good fit. Um, then secondly, what is your outcome? If you can't, if you don't have plans to really impact change, then again, I'm not a good fit for you because I don't want to waste your time or mine. Um, for me, it's not necessarily about the money, although I definitely need it to, to live, but it's more about the impact and I'm not going to have my name associated with an organization who is, is doing what I call window dressing diversity, um, but not really focused on having a real impact. Right. She's got some. Um, when I looked you up on Facebook, I saw that we had we have like 26 friends. Oh, wow. And and I won't hold TP against you. I won't hold him against you. But when I look at the people who we had in common, they like you, you're not really connected to my ratchet friends. You, you, you're connected to my thinking friends, my people who are moving and shaking and have just I have a large amount of respect for. Her. So I was like, OK, you know, she she's on point. Um, but I wanted to look at the future or just talk about where you think the future of diversity and inclusion, equity and inclusion is going, because I looked up an article and this is affirmity. And basically a couple of takeaways here. It says companies are struggling to mature their DEI initiatives with only 22% indicating 
that they are in expert or advanced stages. Only 40%, which I thought this was somewhat of a high number, only 40% of companies offer DE&I related learning and development opportunities to all employees. So I'm a little jaded. I thought 40% was high. Just 45% say that their workforce reflects the demographics of today's marketplace. So when I was reading that article and they're talking about the future of DE&I, and I think about the advancements that we've made as human beings and how individuality accompanies accompanies um, those advancements. How do you think that affects DEI? Does it make it more difficult, or does it make it an easier place? It's it's more difficult, and here's why: a lot of organizations will have their business goals, and then they have diversity goals. They can't be segmented. Your diversity and inclusion goals have to be integrated into your business goals. Um, And you have to want real finite outcomes. You have to be willing to do the hard work, to have the hard conversations. And in some instances, even part ways with some employees. I've had employees tell me, well, you know, you have an employee resource group for black people. Can we have one for white people? Well, the workplace is your employee resource group because you are the majority you have pay equity, you have all the things that other groups are are striving towards. So the entire workplace is your employee resource group. And when I explain it to them that way, some of them go, I never thought of it. And then others go, but that's, that's not fair. It's not, it may not be fair, but is it fair that a, a black person is paid less than, than a white person? For doing the same work, right. is it fair right. that a woman is paid less simply because she's cap- capable of having a baby and men are paid more because they might have a family? That's not fair either, but those are the rules, the unwritten rules that our society pays us by. Right, right. And TP, you can jump in here with insurance. I want to give these stats really quick. Just when we talk about the insurance industry, right? Um, 69.6% are white, 15.8% Hispanic or Latino, 8.6% Black, 4.3% Asian. We got some unknowns in there, which we can probably throw them to our side. But hey, uh, the numbers say 8.6% is Black. Um, What's your view? And then TP, if you got a question, cut me off. But I just want to, what's your view on the insurance industry? And do you think how do we get work done when these companies have been around for eons and passed down leadership, not having to qualify for leadership roles, but passed it down and they've got all these biases? How do well, we do? Well, I think, first of all, the insurance industry is known for its racism, um, just in how it's treated. It's customer base. Um, and so... I think, you know, in some research that I've done, it wasn't until 2000 that a lawsuit was settled about unfair premiums for their black um, clients. And so you have to deal with that, that racial reckoning. And then you have to look at, assess why. And part of it is, you know, it may be that it's lack of access, um, lack of awareness about the opportunity. But then there's all, you have to also look at the barriers to entry. Um, what's the company, Aon, am I pronouncing it right, Aon, 
they've yeah. recently announced, um, I actually got the, the, the news on Thursday or Friday, that they are moving, removing their bachelor's degree requirement for some of their roles. And they, they've partnered with local community colleges that will allow them to build a curriculum um, in a sense that sort of an apprenticeship so that folks can get an, an associate's degree and still get into the industry. So that's an organization that's that's looking at looking inwardly and saying, what can we do? What are some of the barriers to entry? Can we remove so that our workforce can become more diverse? And that's one of the first things you can do is look at those unnecessary requirements that might be a barrier to entry from someone from a historically excluded group where there is a wealth gap. Um, right. Right. So, no, it's interesting that you brought that up, Shay. Um, I was having a conversation earlier today with a group of agents, some friends of mine, and um, one of them brought up four insurance companies. I'm not going to name the companies. I, I don't remember all of them anyway. But he asked, he said, you know, what do all four of these have in common? And, you know, everybody went around the room and guessed. And he said they have all settled several major lawsuits for discrimination against black people in the workplace, as well as some of the products and policies that they've sold. And, you know, we started to have a conversation about it because the interesting thing about it is after selling, settling the lawsuits, they made no changes to policies on how they operated. It's like, we got the money, we will pay it off, whatever fines and, and suits that come our way, but we're gonna keep operating our businesses the way we have, you know, for, for decades. So Latrice, my question to you is, you know, you've been at this for 15 years. Are you seeing more companies open to real change or are we just in this country so embedded with these legacy companies that there's not really the change on the horizon we're hoping for? Are you seeing more of these companies be like, hey, let's let's do something different or? Mm -hmm. I, if I'm honest, the old baby boomers and even some older Gen Xers need to retire mm -hmm. um, until that old school philosophy leaves the industry. You're not going to get the change that you need. But when you have millennials and beyond some younger Gen Xers and millennials who are mo more open to diversity because they've um, millennials, particularly they are the first um group of, they're the first generation that's actually had more diversity than, you know, less homo homo homogenous interactions than, than other generations. They are, their friendship circles are more diverse than other generations. So until we get more baby boom, more, more millennials in the C-suite and making those decisions, we're not going to get the change that's needed, not just in the C-suite, but also the board of directors. So that's going to, we're going to have those old generations with those old school beliefs. And many of it is, much of it is unconscious. Um, they got to get moved out of the way so we can really bring about change. And that's why you have change happening in the startup industry because of who's starting up companies. So that's a good point because my, my follow-up question is how do we, okay, they retire, they move on, but these, a lot of these companies have been in families for generations. So, they have a lot of say in who replaces them. Mm -hmm. You know, I think Marriott for the first time within the last couple of years just named a president that is not part of their family. So 
even though they retire and move out of the way, the succession plan typically has people that think just like them because they want the business to continue to operate the same way it has. But you brought up a good point. Some of these startup businesses right out the gate are open to making sure that there's equality and, and diversity and different things that we're talking about. They're not in a position right now to compete with some of the bigger companies. But even when it comes to brand recognition, I'm seeing some of the younger generations aren't so tied to a specific specific company or brand when it comes to doing business. We're seeing the boom of the online bank that's challenging the Bank of America's and the Chase's and the Wells Fargo's, where people will go to these small tech startup banks and feel just as comfortable putting their money there than this bank that's been around for over 100 years. So how do we, I guess, support and find these smaller startups that are already moving in that in that way? Um, I think as you continue to have industries, traditional industries, marry more with technology, you'll find those, those, you know, I'm partnering with a fintech company. I think they call them insure tech companies now. Um, so if you are to look more into insure tech companies, you'll find those, those startup organizations with that mentality that's focused more on diversity, equity and inclusion. And people can show up and be their authentic self because they recognize they, they many of these companies are very data driven and they, they're not selective. They're like, give me the data that shows me how I can be successful. So research shows that organizations that are more inclusive are more innovative and are more profitable. So if I have to, if this is what I got to do, if it's just simply boil down to dollars and cents, if I got to do this to make my company successful, then that's what I'm going to do. Whereas with the more traditional companies, they're more stodgy, they're more wieldy. It's like trying to turn around a cruise ship versus trying to turn around a yacht. So it's definitely more difficult to turn around a cruise ship with its huge bulkiness versus a smaller, sleeker yacht. So that's the perfect analogy for me to describe that. And so you have these insure tech companies that are up and coming and they're getting funding. Um, and a lot of these more traditional companies who aren't willing to look at new ways of doing business, unfortunately, they may not be around 10, 20, 30 years from now. Right. Right. Which is great. That that answer gives me hope. I don't know how much of it I will see, but that's okay. Um, the answer really gives me hope. You mentioned something, and I know we're kind of winding down on time, but you mentioned something and it, it was connected to a question that I have for you. You you mentioned unconscious biases. And we talk about I I think that we talk about unconscious biases more so when we're talking about leadership and decision makers. Um, and, and I don't mean we here, I just, just in general. But if you if we were to put a mirror up to ourselves and we're talking about our folks, the black community, how do our unconscious biases show up and how do they hinder us? How do you see them hindering us when we're talking about being in the workplace and making advancements? So I wouldn't even say that it's unconscious bias that hinders us. It's lack of feeling included that is what hinders us. Um, for instance, one of the things that you, you must do in corporate America to succeed is you have to do those extracurricular things. More often than not, when we talk about, oh, my, the team's getting together after work, I'm going home. 
is oftentimes what we say. When you do that, you miss out on those um, those unofficial opportunities to interact and engage. You miss out on the opportunity to build relationships outside of the workplace. Um, so that impacts us. Our unwillingness to expand our network. Um, we need to have a diverse network network of people. I tell my, my friends that you need to have your own personal board of directors and it needs to be diverse. Um, you need to have a mentor who can give you, give you a seat at that table by becoming your sponsor. Those are things that we have to begin to take advantage of. So we have to step outside of our comfort zone and we have to make our presence known. Um, and so depending on the company, sometimes you got to take baby steps to make that presence known. Other times you can just come on in and be who you are um, and just make your presence known. We have to own our careers and that means building relationships. Um, and that's where we we fail. We we don't we fail to make those connections, particularly with diverse a diverse group of people, because we don't feel it may be imposter syndrome, or it may just be that we don't feel included. Now you spoke to me on that because I I'll be 100. That's I struggle with that sometimes when it comes to having that diverse group just within your circle, right? The the workplace is one thing. The workspace is one thing, but I think so. Sometimes we become so pro black that it's like I'm pushing away everything that don't look like me and, you know, finding those allies or people to allow into that space can be a little challenging sometimes. So I, struggle. Um, I saw a video today where white women are colonizing Tupac's song, Keep Your Head Up. And I actually got angry because we all know that song was made for black women, um, but they're saying it applies to all women. And, and I had to take a step back and say there are white women in my circle who understand this and I don't need to shut them out. So doing this work, I have to constantly remind myself that I can't shut out allies and advocates because if there's change to be made, they're going to have to be the ones to help make that change happen. Mm, that's that's a tough one. I'm not even going to open that up because we only got five minutes left, but I do want to um, bring up a question. Um, Armita said, are we going back to affirmative action and how do we deal with backlash of reverse discrimination? So actually affirmative action is on the docket for the Supreme Court. So we might might likely be getting affirmative action, maybe getting done away with entirely. Um, and is it really reverse discrimination? Um, because if you hold all the power and you're paid equitably um, and in some in some instances it is, but you notice when I talked about Cisco and them having targets, not tokens. You say you still have requirements, but then you remove the barriers to entry and you start um, interviewing and assessing people at a level playing field, accounting for cultural differences. If someone is of Nigeria, if it's a Nigerian woman, a woman of Nigerian descent, they're taught not to look people in the eye when look men in the eye when they speak. So instead of not instead of holding that against me in an interview, understand from a cultural perspective that I may not look you in the eye, but it's not because I'm I'm not confident. It's just from a cultural perspective. That's how I was raised. So it's in letting helping people become more culturally aware so they can then make better decisions. So just don't have tokenism, have targets, remove the barriers to entry, um, and you won't have to deal with issues of reverse discrimination. But affirmative action is something that we really can't depend on. And honestly, it helped white women more than it helped black people anyway. Amen. 
uh, one quick thing you, you mentioned, um, Shay went over the numbers, the statistics of us as blacks in the industry, eight point something percent. So we're usually the minority in the room, right? So you said something when we spoke of the weekend and um, it was letting me be authentically who I am without changing to your standard, right? So with us being a minority in an industry that's run by middle-aged white men, I think, Shay, you said it's like 60-something percent of the industry. Right. So speak to our agents that find themselves in most instances being the minority in a room full of their colleagues on how to be able to stand and be their authentic selves. Part that, That's where that allyship comes into play. You may not be able to initially be yourself if you're the only one in the room, particularly if it's a room full of people who don't understand the cultural differences. That's where you have to align yourself with allies and then focus on building relationship with someone who can mentor you and ultimately sponsor you. Black people don't have enough sponsorship um, because that sponsor is the person who helps you get a seat at the table or who speaks about your skills and abilities when you're not in the room. Um, we have to begin to build those relationships outside of our small circle. Um, and that's the difficult thing because there is a significant amount of lack of trust between black people and white people. Yeah. And it's not going to be overcome easily, um, but find that ally and begin to build those real strategic relationships. I do a class with um, a tech company and it's called strategic networking. And it's all about building relationships to help you advance your career in an environment where you are a significant minority. Yeah, I was about to say, we need to do a whole show on allies and sponsorship. I mean, that's definitely something I think a lot of us are missing. Um, yeah, we, we definitely need to talk about that more. So we're up against the clock, Latrice. Um, Shay, anything you want to get Latrice to close us out with before we let her go for the evening? You know, <clears throat> if there if there is any, well, you already did it in a sense. You just spoke to our agents. And this is something that is really, really critical to us in this industry. Um, but outside of the question you were just asked, is there anything else that you would deliver to our agents before we let you go? And also, how can folks find you, you know, companies find you so that they can work with you? Sure. Um, advice to the agents. Um, never. Many of us cover. We call it putting on our Becky voice or whatever. Covering also has an emotional tax. So make certain that when you are in an environment where you are a minority, that you take time out and you take care of yourself. Secondly, build strategic relationships outside of your, your, your demographic. If your industry is primarily white and male, I'm not saying suck up and, not, and be inauthentic. Absolutely not. But find your allies and build relationships with them. Find mentors who you can work with, who can ultimately sponsor you if you want to grow your career. Because honestly, they hold the, they hold the table. So in order for us to get a seat at the table, we have to begin to build relationships. And you have to learn to engage so that you can pitch who you are and what your skills are. We have to be able to, to tell what our X factor is. What's your, what's your elevator pitch? So those are things that you have to do. To get in contact with me, the, my, the name of my company is Humanizing Diversity. Um, and you can reach me at literallybross at gmail.com. 
And that was humanizing diversity, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Thank you so much, Latrice. We appreciate yeah. you. Hopefully we can have you back for another conversation. Absolutely. Anytime. Yeah. yeah, I think we need to do a workshop or something. But again, yeah, thank you, Latrice, and we'll catch thank up with you. Yeah. All right. Bye. Enjoy your evening. You too. Yeah. That was an expansive conversation. That that's hopefully that got some folks um thinking. I know we focus in reference to soul, but we focus on our blackness and our community. And that definitely is very, very important, but it doesn't negate um, the information that Latrice and, and the advice that she just shared as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and for a lot of us, it is challenging because of our history with other cultures. Right. You know, to to trust and to, you know, give access to certain things. So, no, I definitely appreciate both conversations we've had with Latrice so far and I look forward to having some more sure. and hopefully you know how our sober family you know benefited from this conversation tonight as well so um do you want to close this out tonight I'm not really going to do yeah. much in in the way of announcements or anything this is kind of one of those conversations where my head is still kind of going so um a couple of things I want to do before you know I shut down for tonight but is there anything you want to leave our family with I do. There was something in the back of my mind for the last couple of days, actually. And it's interesting that we had this conversation because it's really fitting. It's nothing long and drawn out. It's very simple. And that is to not not just live your life, but to create it. Hmm. And I think so often we get stuck in a way, you know, this is how things have already, you know, how have always been. Or I came into this world and things were just like this. I'm just going to live my life in a sense. And in my mind, that's not really, really living. If you're not creating your way, then you're not doing the world, you know, any justice. And it sounds cliche to say create your life. Um, And usually the things that are cliche, they sound familiar for a reason because there's simple rules for us to live our lives by. So you know, in reference to this conversation and just life in general, I say, are you really creating your life or are you just living it? Sometimes we need to step back from day to day, even, especially if you know you haven't been creative and just really think, you know, how much purpose, how much passion, how much impact am I making or am I kind of just floating through, you know? So. Love it. Appreciate it. Hey, what's up family? Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Uh, We will see you guys on the wall. If not, we'll see you next week on next week podcast. Have a good one.